Hello and welcome to the Art of Product podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein and I'm here today with my co-host, Derek Reimer. Hey, dude. Hey, man. How's it going? It's going well. Happy Friday. Yeah. Happy Friday to you. So uh, there's some new stuff out. Some new things have happened. Yeah. So last week I, uh, I forced you to commit to releasing a video for yeah. your refactoring Rails course, right? Well, I feel like I opted into committing to releasing a video. You did, yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't totally compulsory. <laughs> uh, but yes, I did. I did commit to that, and I did do it. Sent out the first video Wednesday, I think. I think people started getting it uh, Thursday morning due to the sending delay. I recorded and released a video on the benefits of following REST in Rails applications. So I uh, created a Rails app, a really simple one, that had some non-RESTful routes in it and recorded a video of me uh, recommending people use REST and then actually refactoring it live and talking about why this is worthwhile and uh, the benefits that we gained by doing that. I got the I got the email since I'm on your list and uh, the little preview email of like, hey, don't share this around too wide, but let me know what you think. And I did watch it and I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Oh, thanks. The feedback has been really good so far. Um, and that was like very much intentionally a rough draft. Like I didn't go, didn't go crazy with editing or even like, like worrying about sound quality too much. I just used like a headset mic. It took about like a day and a half to prep the code and like get the rough idea of the, what I wanted to do. But then I was only a, like, I kind of just did it in one take actually. That recording that went out was all just, just one, one thing. Yeah. I saw a few, a few points in there where you were like, you know, type the wrong command and whoops, I always make that mistake. Right. And and correct yourself but it wasn't it wasn't distracting i don't think i mean even if that made it into a final edit <laughs> yeah it's it, it's interesting i i described it that way to people saying hey this is a rough draft and you know it's not perfect and like i even called out the audio quality in particular and people were like yeah i thought it was fine audio didn't bother me i thought the mistakes were fine i like seeing people actually screw up it makes it feel more real i think actually like the a little bit of that rawness i think is going to make it into the final version like people mentioned they really liked like the live voiceover Something I've done in the past with other videos is to record the screen movements and then write an ex a script after the fact and then speak the script over the movements, which gives you a very polished final version. But it does kind of... I, I watched a video I had made before where I had done that, and it's just it does feel very different. Um, it feels honestly more boring. You kind of lose that like interesting live coding element. Right. I think people like that. Yeah. And I don't think it'll, I don't think it detracts enough from the, the overall deliverable for people to feel like it's like less valuable to them because it's, because it has that rawness factor. If anything, it benefits it, I think. So yeah, I, I kind of agree. And so I think, I think I'm going to keep that feel that keep that live commentary. And, and I, I did some edits on this, on the thing I sent out, like I removed a lot of ums and like just a couple, like a handful of typos. Like if I wasn't talking while I was typing and I typed some stuff, I could just cut that right out and just like it looks like I'm just typing pretty flawlessly. Yeah. Were your keys were your keystrokes sped up at all, or was that is that your normal typing speed? That's my normal typing speed. I was impressed. <laughs> so the, one of my takeaways from the video is like, wow, Vim is pretty impressive. Like what I can tell, like when you're when you know what you're doing and you're you know opening two windows at a time and four windows at a time and snapping between them, like yeah, I can I can definitely see the productivity gains from that. Nice. That's good. Um, I was I was hoping some of that would come through, and a couple people referenced the same thing. And actually, somebody gave me a, good, a Vim tip. He was like, "Hey, I saw you do this thing, and there's a better way to do that," and I, which was awesome. A couple people commented that they liked seeing how I worked and felt like they picked up a couple things. And yeah, I was feeling pretty good, like watching it after the fact. I was like, "Yeah, that's there." There are a couple times where, like, because I had practiced the moves I was going to do, it's pretty dang fast. 
So that was cool. I think one note I would say is like the font size seemed small. That was one thing I, I noticed. I was watching on my phone and I was like struggling to see. Totally. Everybody says that. Yeah. I wish in retrospect I had sent it to like 20 people because basically everyone that responds says, it's great. The font size is too small. Uh, sometimes you talk too fast. And those like those are the top two pieces of feedback over and over and over. But one thing I've learned is like when you email hundreds of people, sometimes they get back to you like weeks later. So I'm betting that like three weeks from now, I'll still be getting emails from people saying, I just watched it. The font size is too small. <laughs> you should set up an autoresponder in your email that's like, <laughs> search for the string font size too small and have a yeah. <laughs> reply. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I don't know. Can you replace a YouTube video in place? Like, can I keep that URL working and then just upload a new one? Hmm. I guess sure. it'd be no. I doubt but it. Maybe but you can. Yeah. So I'm, I'm already re-recording rolling those pieces of feedback in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I have a much bigger font. I'm talking a little slower. I'm actually almost done with that recording uh, and I'm about ready to start editing it. Or I've, I've already edited some of it and I'm about to finish recording. Cool. How so. much time How much time total did it take you to produce that? Roughly. Um, it was, so it was about a day and a half of prep, maybe mm -hmm. almost two days of like getting the code ready mm -hmm. and figuring out where I wanted to, to what refactoring I was going to do and practicing a little bit. Uh, and then it was only, like I mean, like I said, it was one take. So I threw away a couple takes. I'd had a couple false starts. But then once I did it, it was like just like 15 minutes of actually talking and typing. So like half a day on the recording. So about two days total. And like for this product overall, what's your goal on like number of modules do you want to release with? Like does that get, kind of give you a sense based on how much time it took you to do this and how many modules you want to have? Like roughly how long it'll take you to, to get it shipped? Yeah, I, I've, I've started thinking about that. I don't quite have an answer, but I now I think I know what the rough format of the course is going to be based on the experience of this video and the response to it. I can't remember if I've pitched this to you or not, but I think what I'm going to do is, because it's a course on refactoring, I think what I want to do is pick each major part of the Rails stack, like models, views, controllers, routes, uh, and say, um, here are a handful of smells you're likely to find in a mature Rails app. And here is me refactoring them to something better. And here's why that was worth doing. Each video becomes kind of a nice standalone discrete thing. And I think I can develop a list of those things pretty easily and quickly. So I don't know, I'm imagining maybe a dozen, but it kind of depends. Like I'm, I'm going to start writing up a list today, actually, after I finish editing this video and say, okay, what, what do I know right now I want to include? Yeah, no, that sounds totally reasonable to me. I'm assuming there's going to be supplemental like source code shipped with each uh, each demonstration. Yeah, I think so. Somebody asked me for that and said, hey, I'd even pay more for that if that were like a premium add on. Yeah, which isn't a bad idea. Yeah. Like if I'm working from code and I have the git commits and such, I think that's a nice resource to, to show people. I do too, because I think one one aspect as I was watching the video, it was it was clearly like focused on the actual refactoring work and not kind of like the the surrounding code on it, which I think was appropriate for that video. Like, but for example, I was thinking someone may look at that and desire to be able to do the same type of flow that you did, where you they keep running their tests and and see it fail in different ways as they refactor. But I don't know if people are going to necessarily have the right tests in place to be able to do that. So it would probably be at least helpful for them to be able to see the test suite and know like how were the tests crafted in this case so that I can make sure I can refactor smoothly, you know, and maybe that's even, maybe that's a module in and of itself, like testing in a refactoring friendly way. Right. Yeah. Testing is definitely going to be a, a big part of the course. A lot of people called out. They really liked seeing that I was actually doing refactorings with the tests along the way. 
Uh, I haven't seen a Ruby product that does that. Uh, there, like, there are some other refactoring resources out there, but it's not like, what should your tests look like while you're doing it? How do you refactor tests themselves? I think that's kind of under-discussed. And like a big, hairy test suite can definitely slow you down just as much, if not more, as having a big, hairy model. So um, that's going to be a major topic for sure. It seems like that might even be a thing that people need to do is like refactor some of their tests first so that then they can refactor their actual code smoothly, right? So that's a pretty big topic. Like if you have like, how do you refactor something that's not covered by tests right now? You can write a whole book on that. And Michael Feathers did. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, called Working Effectively with Legacy Code, which is like a really good read on the topic. That actually would probably be worth doing a couple, at least one video on, because I bet there are a lot of people in that place and I can at least give some high level guidelines. It's, it's not a situation I deal with a lot because I basically only, only work on TDD code, but I'm in a unique situation that way, I think. Any other thoughts you had while you're watching or feedback or? Um, no, I think that's, I mean, I jotted down a few things and, and my, my two things were font size, obviously, which you've heard many times and uh, feeling like there were some existing assumptions made, like having good tests backing it. So I was like, yeah, I think, I don't think you should have necessarily done it a different way because to like go into like, here's how I crafted my tests would be kind of outside the scope of that video, I feel like, but just offering it at least as a supplemental so that people can look at it um, would, would solve that. And yeah, overall, I think I thought it was, it was good, solid. Cool. Thanks. That's a good idea there. By the way, on Upcase, if people are in that case or in that situation where they want to learn how to do like the TDD process for Rails in general, Upcase has a course called Test Driven Rails, which is getting updated right now. Like the, the, the one that's up there now is awesome. It's by Josh Clayton uh, and he's re-recording it and updating it for the newest version of Rails. And that's that's a really good overview of how do you actually start test driving Rails code. So if someone wants to go deep on that topic, it's worth checking out Upcase for that. Yeah. I noticed your tests ran really fast, like the boot time was fast are you using are you doing something special just using spring okay okay do you use spring on drip i don't think so okay but i think we need to are, are you familiar with it <laughs> um i've heard of it but i i don't not too familiar yeah it just it, it pre-boots the app its goal is to speed up your tests but also like uh rails console or um running things like uh db commands it pre-boots the app and then i think just forks it each okay. time Got it. And fires commands at it. Is it buggy at all? Like if you edit some file in lib or something that like... Some of that creeps in every once in a while, but it's pr it has a pretty good list of default things it knows it has to reload when you touch it. So like, for instance, if you touch routes, it has to, it will reloads the app. Uh, and you can actually see that in my screencast that when I run rerun my test after editing the routes, it takes a little extra time. I wouldn't work on an app without Spring. It's totally worth it. Yeah, I think we need That's to. The small amount of jankiness that you get is is totally worth the time. Right. Also, you were watching me work on an app that had like no gems in it. Yeah, that's the other thing. I no know, like, models, effectively. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's it's always going to load faster than a real app. Sure, sure. But which which is perfect for my purposes because oh like, yeah, you just want you want the feedback. Totally, totally. Cool. But yeah. but I will say like even on bigger apps I've worked on like with Spring, it's still you know a second or two before the test starts running. Right. Yeah. Because if, if it's got a second, if it's got a hot copy of it in memory, it's just like. Yeah, all the time is spent just hoisting that massive payload of code into memory, right? So, Right, totally. Yeah. Loading all those gems and whatnot. Yep. That, that's a perfect example right there. Like you said, like, your tests went really fast. And it's like, I want people to see what it's like when I'm actually doing work on things. Because if you're used to like, oh, let me, let me uh, command tab away from my editor and go over to the command line and type like rspec spec slash mana. 
like that's there's there's a better way and i will show you yeah 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 i think that could be well maybe that's outside of the scope of this course but like some of those like hacks on setting up your environment in a, in a really best practices way i'd love to see a blog post on that <laughs> sure um there's i mean i'm gonna say it again there's a lot of good stuff in upcase like this gets that definitely got covered like a fair amount um i'm plugging upcase it's a good thing cool, go it's a good to, product uh, art of com slash upcase for your fr- no i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah for your affiliate links yeah um so yeah so next up for me i'm almost done with the second pass and uh i'm looking forward to like shipping that out again saying hey i heard your feedback here's a new version uh what do you think and then i think once that's out i think i will probably make it public because i want to make sure i'm investing sort of continuous effort in bringing new people into the mailing list i'm up to about 400 subscribers on that list and i'm adding about 20 a day on an average day without without me doing anything uh i tweeted once or twice this week about it but mostly stayed quiet um and i'd like to get that number up i'd love to launch to like 2000 people or so just a random number i pulled out of the air i think by sharing some stuff that will help bump that number up it gives something for people to share where it's like hey here's a good video send it to your coworkers, and if they want to stay on the list or if they want to hear more they can get on this list too versus just like please sign up for the course mailing list um and i also have some ideas of friends of mine in the ruby community that i'm going to ask to maybe talk about the course or one of the videos or something like that that's cool. Yeah. I was going to say right now is most of your traffic just kind of from sharing it on Twitter with your audience. You have a pretty fair sized audience there, I would say. Yeah, just about. I think it's mostly yeah. Twitter folks. And I'm already seeing the, the thing where like I tweet about it. At, like the first time I tweeted about it, it's like a bunch of people. And the next time it's like less people. And then it's kind of it's, it's trailing off for sure. Yeah. And the other thing I'm, I've done is I've, I've ordered some stuff on Amazon. <laughs> I'm upgrading my sound situation. Got a new mic on the way, which is supposed to help. Uh, Tom says will help reduce the room sound. Ordered a, a boom arm or like one of those like microphone arms to clamp onto my desk. And so I don't need to have a big stack of books on my desk like I do right now to lift the microphone to my mouth. And then uh, also I think I'm going to get some, I'm going to work on the reducing some of the echo in here. I have a bit of a, a minimalist decorating aesthetic, you could say. So bare walls and bare floors and such. Uh, so I, I'm going to order some some panels, I think, and buy a rug and maybe put some hang some curtains and such. Nice. Which uh, which microphone did you get? Do you remember the do you recall the brand? Uh, I got an Audio Technica ATR 2100. Boom. That's the one I have. <laughs> do you really? Because <laughs> it's from Tom's recommendation. <laughs> uh, like I, when I was yeah, when I was going to start on Giant Robots with you, I, I did some research and I found this one was like, you know, one of the top rated ones. And then he happened to. Um, uh, recommend the same one so yeah. nice yeah it, i mean you sound good so yeah cool so yeah so i'm looking forward to getting the sound really dialed into nerding awesome. out over that is always fun mm-hmm. yeah yeah but I'm, I'm i'm feeling good it's, it's nice to have some momentum and positive feedback like i'm getting a couple emails every hour basically saying like i watched it it's really good i like it i had a bunch of people say i'm ready to pay um, or like, I'm, I'm looking forward to what you're doing. Like, I think you're onto something. So the, the feedback has been really solid. Good. That's got to feel good. So it's like, how's, how's the psyche doing with the whole, uh, being solo? Yeah. Uh, doing well, actually. I feel like I'm hitting a bit of a groove. Um, having the thing to focus on is really positive. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about like knowing people at the co-working space. 
I'm starting to be friendly with a handful of people. Um, I don't know if I talked about this, but I uh, I joined the... So our co-working space has a rowing team. Yeah, I think you mentioned it. I don't know if it was offline okay. though, but yeah. Yeah, so um, we do, which is such a New England thing to have, but yeah, we do. <laughs> totally. uh, and <laughs> I joined it, and which is nice. We have practices once a week and there's eight people in a boat. So seven of the people in the co-working space, I now know a lot better than I did because you, you do the practice and then like everyone has beers afterwards and... Uh, that's that's helped a lot just being part of a group and and knowing those people a little bit better so yeah i think i'm kind of i'm i'm in a decent place good any good any specific uh, goals for next week that i can hold you to yeah i mean i want to get another video out okay another video for sure it's looking like uh not next week but the week after i'm probably going to take that whole week off it's the week of the july 4th i'm going to go down to martha's vineyard with, with my family and then i'm going out to vegas with uh, my quartet. Uh, th- there's the international barbershop competition happens in Vegas once a year. We're not competing, but we are attending. Uh, so I'm going to be gone all week. So I actually, I'm going to try to get two videos done next week, actually. I think I'll have my process dialed in to the point where two is a pretty reasonable thing for a week. And I, I think I have the topics in mind. So I think that's feasible. Very so cool. let's say that. All right. Sounds good. So uh, what's up with you? It's been a good shipping week again, similar to last week. Yeah, I got to say, following up on my the thing I mentioned at the end of last episode about uh, dialing down my notifications on on GitHub, life changing. <laughs> so good. Uh, I should have done that a long time ago. As far as I know, I haven't missed out on any vital conversations. But now, anytime I you know pop open to my notifications tab, there's just a nice short list of relevant things for me. So, um, and so, what did you do again specifically? What so did you I, change? I unwatched the the main drip repository where basically all the issue and pull request activity happens so github their notification systems kind of a little bit wonky but basically when you watch a repository that says i want to receive all notifications about any activity that happened um whereas if you unwatch it but you're still you're still a member of it then you'll just get notified when someone mentions you on an issue or requests a review or um you know, if you comment on an issue, you are now subscribed to that issue. So any further activity on there, you'll be notified of. So it's basically like if if someone, you know, submits a pull request and doesn't mention me or someone files an issue and I'm not particularly mentioned, then I won't receive a, like a direct notification about that. That's been really good on my clarity. And I'm wasting a lot less time going through and like clicking each notification to see if I actually need to be involved or not. Um, nice. Yeah. You're letting people opt into having you involved. Yeah, exactly. I like that. You're like pushing trust out to the edges that way. Yep. Yep. And I've had to, I mean, it's taken a little while to get my team accustomed to using kind of the new tooling that GitHub's offering, like the requesting a review um, on a pull request. And before we were just relying on like at mentions and comments and stuff to to do that. But now that there's more actual built-in machinery around that, you know, nowadays I tell my team, like, if there's something you want me to review specifically, then make sure to request it because I keep like a bookmark to the the filtered list of pull requests that like are specifically requesting my review, uh, which you can which you can do now. So like rather than relying on notifications, I rely on the the state of what pull requests are in. And if they're in a review requested state for me, then I can just always go and pop that open when I need to and see see my queue of things in general. I think this is a big productivity thing. Like, like you should never have to rely on a push notification of some kind to know that there's something for you new for you to do. 
Instead, you should always like try to get things into a state where you can go and like view a list of your inbox of things to do. And so any any place I can do that, I, I always try to do that. And GitHub was kind of the last remaining one where I was kind of relying on notifications to to follow up on things. Yeah, I like that a lot because it, you're you're asynchronously building a list of work for you to then go process when you're ready for it versus like stuff just showing up in your face with a sense of urgency attached to it. Yep, totally. Nice. That sounds that, awesome. That's been good. Um, yeah, and we, we we shipped another big thing this week. Um, so I mentioned we shipped shareable workflows um, last week that give, you know someone can click a share button and they get a link similar to a Dropbox share link, but it's a link to, to a workflow in their account. And then anyone who has that share link can click an install button and it copies the workflow into their own account. So this is really big. You know, marketers who want to who want to tweet about different workflows they've built or even included in a course content where there's you know, potentially behind a paywall so they can essentially sell the workflows they've built. It's a major feature that allows people to do that. And now we've we've kind of taken it to completion by allowing you to embed a workflow in your on your website. So if you're publishing a blog post or something and you want to, you know, previously people would just screenshot the workflow um, and paste a static image of it. And now it's like we have an embed widget. You can just paste a little snippet of code. And it has an install button that's automatically your affiliate link. So, oh, uh, nice. Yeah. So if you're, I forgot you had affiliates. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nice. Yeah, and our commission is is higher now than it used to be. I can't remember what the exact number is, but it's it's pretty that's decent. Right. Yeah. Cool. So that, well, that sounds like a, a win for everyone. Yeah, felt really good to ship that. It's been it's been in the plans for a long time, to be honest, but it just finally made it to the top of the queue. So, yeah. I guess you're, I imagine you're tracking some usage numbers around that. I actually was just thinking about that today. I mean, we can, we can pull some stats out of like low level logging and stuff, but I do want to get some specific tracking around like how many people, how many people are sharing links and then how many of those links are being interacted with and, and workflows being installed. It'd be nice to have that aggregated in a, in an analytics dashboard of some kind. Yeah. And if I, if I click the install link as a non subscriber, does it take me to like a thing and say, Hey, you're almost done installing this you just need to sign up yep it does nice yeah awesome that seems worth tracking for sure yeah yeah which i think i you know probably our analytics team could could at least piece it together based on referrers and stuff but i should at least double check with them because that would be a good a good path to track for sure um, yeah my intuition is that this is going to be a big channel for you but mm-hmm. I, so i'd be curious to hear if that it gets borne out yeah i would be too yeah, so some, I think some emails went out today, so it's kind of early on, but we'll see what the impact is. People seem to people seem to buzz about it when they when they realized the feature was there because we kind of, as we typically do, we just soft shipped it, and some people noticed it, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, you can do this now!" So that's been good, and and also doing some some strategizing this week on our back end kind of rearchitecture of our infrastructure that we're that we're starting. I've alluded to it quite a bit over the past few months, but um, we're actually starting to get some concrete work in on that. So that's been that's been really fun too. The guy we hired uh, who started last week um, is kind of starting to spearhead efforts on on figuring out how to make our delivery system scale. That's like one of the most critical systems obviously in in Drip. So so we're looking at using right now some technologies we're looking at using our uh, DynamoDB, which is a service from some Amazon that's basically a infinitely scalable database system with its own kind of set of constraints. So like there's limits on the payload size you can push into there. It's a document store similar to 
similar in some ways to Mongo and more similar to Cassandra, if you're familiar with that. So it's like there's more constraints on the data you push in and the way you can query it out. But in exchange, you get a lot more scalability. So hmm. um, who do you do you use like a third party email sending service of some kind? Yeah, so we use SendGrid um, okay. for all of our sending at this point. And yeah, so we're, what we're looking to do is we want to be able to send, like increase our throughput of sends to SendGrid. Because right now they, they have a rate limit of like 3,200 requests per second, I think. And we're not anywhere near that at this point. So like the faster we can render our emails and then make a bunch of, you know, API calls in parallel <laughs> out to, to SendGrid, the better off we're going to be. So what does an average email sending day look like for you, roughly? Like how many uh, emails? Um, we're, we're, I think we're just over 100 million emails a month sent. Jesus. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So the database would, would hold like the task of sending the email is the idea? Yeah. So... So right now, you know, everything is obviously stored in a master like Postgres database. And so when we render emails, we need to go through like pulling out all the subscriber data that needs to be um, basically rendered into these emails, like custom fields, tags, all that kind of stuff. So we pull out you know, all the subscriber data and then we have the copy of the email, the raw template and the email body that has liquid in it that needs to be rendered. Right. And we, you know, churn through every single recipient and render their unique copy of the email. And then we do an insert into the database. And then we have some some jobs that are responsible for pulling out deliveries that are due to send and actually making the API call and then flagging them as sent. So if you think about it, there's like there's like all these job servers that are designed to pull the stuff out as fast as they can and send them. But if there's any kind of latency or bottlenecks happening at the Postgres level on that one deliveries table, then you know everything can just kind of end up running slower. So like when we'll notice patterns, like when load is pretty low, when there's not a lot of other database activity going on, then emails will send faster, like just everything will process a bit faster. But when there's when it's under considerable load, there's a lot of inserts and selects happening at the same time out of that table, then, you know, we we start to drop on our throughput. I see. And you want to keep that super high so that it feels responsive, like you say, send this broadcast and it goes out right away. Exactly. Yeah. So we're starting to we're, we're making kind of our first foray into a microservices architecture, which is it's fun to to kind of work on thinking through how, you know, looking for the right boundaries between different systems. And we're going to we're going to dip our toe in it very cautiously and start with basically sending data to two places to start with. So we're going to keep our existing infrastructure going, but then we're going to say like, all right, we can turn this on for one account where now we're anytime we need to send emails, we're piping that data also to our microservice that's responsible for, you know, storing the delivery data in Dynamo and then, you know, maybe using SQS or something and with an potentially an Elixir service to pull that data out and, you know, send it in a massively parallel way. Obviously we won't be sending from both system at the same time, but just dipping our toe in the water and, and trying to go like as gradual as possible is kind of the, the game plan. So yeah, I would second that. That sounds like a good approach. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of the monolith until absolutely necessary to give it up. Yeah, me too. And it's, it has served us really well. Yeah. And this feels like a good, like you actually are motivated by real concerns. Uh, not like we will probably have to scale this. It's like, we actually are hitting constraints here. Uh, and also, it's like it, it feels, from my end, like a well-defined problem. Like, a, like a, you can draw a box around that process, and probably make it a service without feeling too much pain. Exactly. Yeah. 
And we had like kind of a realization like we were I was originally thinking of it like I, I tend to think of things from a monolith standpoint just because that's what that's the way we've been operating this whole time. But so we're originally picturing like, all right, maybe we should start using Dynamo because it it has, you know, better scalability properties. And initially I was thinking that we would be making calls directly to Dynamo from our from our Rails app. But the more we started thinking about kind of the way to divide this up, it's like, you know, I think the Rails app really should not even be aware that Dynamo exists. We should start thinking of deliveries, the delivery system as its own service. And, you know, it should have its own queuing mechanism and its own way of communicating with its own data store. And, um, you know, as soon as we started going down that route, it started feeling much like if we can just treat certain sections of the system as a black box and they don't know each other's internal details, which is kind of microservices architecture 101, right? Then things really start to to feel better. So there's a, a Rich Hickey talk that I saw. I, I, wish, I can't remember which one it is, um, but he is a big fan architecturally of throwing queues in between pieces because a queue does an awesome job of just separate, like making sure you don't, you can't like get details bled between the two things. It's like, I'm putting this thing on a queue. It's a conveyor belt. I don't know where that conveyor belt goes. And the thing, on the, the thing on the other side doesn't know where the conveyor belt comes from, which means you can change either side and hopefully nothing will blow up. You'll probably inevitably end up with some coupling between the systems, but yeah, hopefully a minimal amount. But it'll, it should stick out pretty blatantly if you do have coupling, you know, it should, like, I feel like having, setting it up in that, architecting it in that way will make it painfully obvious that you have some coupling where it maybe shouldn't be, you know? Uh, I guess. Although I, I'm thinking kind of like almost like the schema of the fields you send over, for example. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. you, that'll have to match, right? Right. Um, yeah. So I think there's going to be an unavoidably some coordination required to make right. certain changes. But they'll have they'll easily have their own contracts, you know. So if we if we abide by the the public APIs of the services that you know, if we know this service that we're building is expecting data in this way, that's the public contract that we can document for ourselves, right? So are you picturing the Rails app directly making HTTP requests to the new system? I think so. Like we're we're going to look at some tooling that's available from from Amazon. Like there's a a product called API Gateway, which is kind of designed to be the first line of defense as opposed to like setting up Nginx boxes to to take in requests. And then that can communicate with a load balancer. And then that load balancer can communicate with some, you know, web front ends we have, whether it's in an Elixir or Rails apps or Node or whatever we want to do. So I think that's how it's going to, I think that's going to how it's going to play out. In some cases, the API gateway may just stuff payloads into SQS. And then we may have our daemons pulling things off of SQS and performing work. Like that may be the the way we set it up too. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. Cues. Cues are great. Cues everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Throw, throw a cue in it. Yep. It'll be fine. That'll solve all problems. Cool. Well, hey, congrats on shipping the workflow thing and yeah, making thanks. some progress on this too. That sounds cool. Yeah. Thanks. And I want to give one last uh, mention. I've been, I discovered a new podcast that has been okay, nice. really fun to listen to. It's called How I Built This and it's produced by NPR. I think it launched maybe fall of last year. And basically, they just do, they're pretty short episodes, and they interview founders of companies, many companies that you've probably heard of. And some of them are technology, and some of them are like, totally not technology, brick and mortar. So they're, you know, they have the founder of Samuel Adams Beer, they have um, Patagonia founder. These stories are just fascinating to listen to. Like there's, I'm starting to pick up on some themes from 
from all these different companies and their backstories. Every one of these founders is in, insanely scrappy at the beginning, right? Like they're just, most of them didn't have an easy ride. Like we all know that it's a myth that, you know, overnight success really almost never happens, right? Hearing the stories of scrappiness and, and how they dealt with failures and pushed through them. Like I think many of these businesses probably would not exist if they had let early failures get them down. So that's been that's been interesting. And they all they all do things that don't scale, right? And that's kind of become a, a meme, a mantra among among like small founders is like doing things that don't scale early on. But like even uh, like we heard the story of Tom's shoes uh, on this podcast and like they were literally manufacturing all their shoes out of like a small production facility in Nicaragua or something like that. Um, and like they started getting orders, things started taking off and he was literally like flying back and forth and checking lots of like cargo luggage on his non-commercial flights back and forth <laughs> to bring shoes into the U S right. So it's yeah. like, um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I listened to a few of those that I, I really enjoyed the Spanx episode. Have you heard that yeah. one? Yeah. That was a, a classic, like it's the same thing. Like she asked like 10 different people, like textile manufacturers to make this thing and none of them would do it. And finally, like, you know, she got like this, like lucky break and that, but, but you're right. That theme is totally there. It's like all of them almost died. And faced like serious struggles early on. It yep. seems like the podcast is not designed to be like how to do what these people did. I feel like there's there's some there's plenty of cautionary tales in there, and there's plenty like I hear people's story, and they're like, some people have said, yeah, I decided not to tell anyone about my idea, and I worked on it just kind of in isolation for a long time, and that was like part of their story, and it's not necessarily a best practice or something you should emulate, but you know, I feel like there's things to learn from all of these stories and. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably in the market for some, you know, some founding stories. So cool. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. I, I second it. Well, hey, it's good talking to you as always. You too, man. Today's show was produced and edited by Podcast Motor. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.